everyone, and welcome back to the ICU Ed and Toddcast. ICU Ed, like education, Ed and Todd, Toddcast podcast. I am Eddie, he is Todd, and today we have two super special guests, Naomi Hammond and Anthony Delaney. Hello. Hi, guys. A quick programming reminder before we begin, we've heard the feedback and comments, some of the articles that you, the listeners, want to hear about, including ECMO and cardiogenic shock from acute MI or ECLS shock, start AKI, which, you know, I'm actually just realizing maybe we should have talked about today, but anyway, and a bicar ICU. Uh, and we also got the most rapid influx of comments from our most recent episode, which was talking about Todd's pickup lines, which <sighs> we may touch on today. But the articles, at least, we're going to be sleeping for the future as Naomi and Anthony will be talking to us about the recently published Sudoku trial, which I just learned was pronounced like that. I was saying Sudiku, and it was titled Effect of Selective Decontamination of the Digestive Tract on Hospital Mortality in Critically Ill Patients Receiving Mechanical Ventilation, published in JAMA, October 2022. I said that they were super special guests, and I mean it because Sudoku was a trial performed in ICUs in Australia. And Naomi and Anthony, both from the ANZIX Critical Care Trial Network and two of the Sudoku investigators, came all the way from Australia just to record with us in person. <laughs> That's right. That is exactly the reason we've come. In, the, in this world of Zoom calls and work from home, you opted for the short 22-hour flight to come over to the States. I'm flattered. It's a small thing to do. Small thing for quality. <laughs> Naomi and Anthony are also the first author and last author, respectively, of the meta-analysis that accompanied this paper, since there is a large body of evidence in GI decontamination. I'm excited. Todd, do you have anything to say before we begin? A better pickup line, perhaps? Uh, no better pickup line. I, I think you I think you covered it. I think we're excited that we're having this opportunity to have Anthony and Naomi join us on the Toddcast, and I think the listeners are going to love this. So, Any good pickup lines from down under? Well, no, when I'm with my um, boss, yeah, <laughs> so I don't really want to go down that uh, path. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm with my boss. <laughs> so I, I have one. I have a story. My best friend from high school, he went to the University of Tennessee, and when we came back from our first year of college, we did like a T-shirt exchange. So I had a Tennessee shirt, and he got a Delaware shirt. And then I was just wearing that randomly in med school, and some girl asked me, Eddie, why Tennessee? And I said, well, because you're the only 10 I see. <laughs> and that girl's not my wife. Oh. <laughs> uh, that, that that sounds like uh, you'd want to look at the causal association between those two particular things. I, my N of one is 100%. Yeah. So I think, I think I'm going to stop there. We do need to get into the background of GI decontamination since I'm going to guess that most of our listeners aren't familiar with this topic. But first, a get to know you question. For both of you, I went on PubMed and just found a staggering number of results from the amazing work, not only with the ANZIX group, but also some global collaborations. The topics covered included fluids, to sepsis, to sedation, depressors, to dialysis. I mean, that's really everything, right? But before I pepper you both on all the questions on all these topics, can you each tell me a little bit something about yourself and a hobby that you have that the people you work with may not know? We'll go, we'll go Naomi first. Uh, so I'm so a little bit of about me. I'm a intensive care nurse uh, by training and uh, moved into uh, research serendipitously. I was I had just finished a master's of nursing and my director of the unit I was working with kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Would you be interested in being a research coordinator here?" And so I kind of I kind of did a mix of clinical and and research. And then I think 
a big step for me was through the trials group, I met John Weiberg and Simon Finfer, and they heard I was moving to Beijing, China. And the George Institute has an office in China, and they were just had finished SAFE and were looking at doing the translation of research into practice study, SAFE trips. And I was uh, heading over to China. And so that's where I kind of got um, involved with the George Institute working in Beijing with Simon and John on the fluid program. And then what do people not know? My hobbies are many. Uh, What I can probably happily share would be um, I love mountain biking. And so I try and do that as often as possible, which is probably not as much as I would like because of the three kids that I have. But they're now kind of joining us on the the trips. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I've been mountain biking... Once I fell way more than once. <laughs> uh, I have more than one scar from that one trip. So I, that's, I kept it at one, Todd. Yeah. Have you ever been mountain biking? Kind of interestingly, I've been mountain biking one time in my life, and it was actually on a trip in Kenya in one of the national parks. On that trip, I got chased by a giraffe. Oh, uh, <laughs> I did out bike the giraffe running, but I got chased by a giraffe. It pains me to say this because it makes me like you, Eddie, but I also had a bad fall on that trip. I don't think I have any scars, though. So that turned you off exercise completely? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, have you looked at him? <laughs> I mean, like, completely? Of course not. I still, like, walk from my car to the ICU. <laughs> Come on. Uh, Anthony, what about you? So I'm an intensive care specialist from Sydney, Australia. Had actually, I started out as an emergency trainee. So I did my emergency medicine training and then joined up through various reasons and finished the ICU sort of dual training. And as many things have happened, I just fell into doing some research. Went over to Canada, spent some time in Canada and actually did my master's with Sean Bagshaw, who's in my class at when we did our master's of clean epi at um, and came back, finished PhD and fell into doing research really rather than doing anything in particular. The secret hobby, the weekend before I came, I did my karate grading and got my karate green belt. And when I go back, I'll be the first time I've ever gone in a karate competition. I'm going to go into the New South Wales state titles and <gasps> go into a karate competition. Oh, that's exciting. That's good luck. Yeah, I, was a, I used to sit at the back, sit with the kids. I got three kids as well, and I would sit at the back of class and watch the kids do their karate, and I thought, I'm going to have a crack at this. <laughs> <laughs> so now we all go to karate together, and we're all going to our first tournament next weekend. Oh, that's awesome. You've also got another hobby that you've just started. Another hobby I've just started. No, I haven't started yet. I'm going to do the woodworking. I love making tables in, our, in my shed out the back of the house. Let's make little <laughs> tables out of bits of... I made one out of a tree that actually fell into our backyard. So how many tables do you have in your house? So they're little uh, – this is super interesting for the people <laughs> listening to a medical podcast, I'm sure. You can sure. cut it out. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, you could cut it out. When we do the ads for the, for the mattresses as well. <laughs> so the, the, mainly little tables that sit at the end of your sofa that you put your drink on, real big things, and there's half a dozen of those around the thing. I made a little table for our kids that you can take the – the lid off and change it from a blackboard to a like a painting easel. He's and got he, a few tables wow. in his office. At, at I got, he made a little well. table yeah. in the office. I made the, the bench that sits over my fridge in the office. Still waiting for Anthony to make one for me to take home, but, you know. Yeah. Yep, that's pretty cool. Uh, I will say that as you talked about that, I found it pretty funny that you were like, and then I sort of, you know, fell into research. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I fell into 10 New England Journal articles. You know, I mean... You hate it when you kind of fall into fall into a New England Journal article or two. 
It's, yeah, I, I don't know. I see some of my career as being serendipity. You know, it's the role of chance and who you come across and you get to work with good people like Naomi and Simon who happened to be at the place where I was working. And that yeah. that's not through hard work, that's through luck. And that's the ANZIC's um, CTG motto really is trying to engage new people. And, and in fact, that's Addy's success story is he happened to get to work with me. <laughs> so Imagine how successful I would have been otherwise. <laughs> SUDIQ is a trial of selective GI decontamination. I checked our listener map, and by a quick look and some estimates and extrapolation, I'm going to go ahead and say that most of our listeners aren't familiar with this practice. Uh, at a minimum, I wasn't. Can you first give me the dummy version of this, just a description of the practice? You can hit me. Yeah. <laughs> so that, so I might put it out there that Australia wasn't doing this either. So it was a new uh, intervention for us, but obviously there's quite good evidence in, in this area and others that we're collaborating with had been doing this. So it's essentially um, three-pronged, I guess. Uh, so you've got the oral paste, paste that goes down the NG tube, and then there's the IV component that goes with that as well. The, the background of it, it came from you know, research we're talking 40 years ago where the observation was that people got critically ill, they'd get their course of treatment, and then they would succumb to infection down the track. And there was, uh, you know, again, observational data that shows that you see a lot of gram negatives that are grown in people's upper GI tract. And because the use of broad spectrum antibiotics is pretty common, there's those changes to the to the upper GI, upper aero digestive tract flora that predisposes people to getting gram negative infections, and mainly in through the, the respiratory tract. The thought was that if you could get rid of those gram negatives while maintaining the rest of your bowel flora, you don't want to completely wipe all it out of the bowel flora because mm. the anaerobes are thought to be important in maintaining that balance in the microbiome, that you could prevent some infections and that would improve, stop the secondary infections and improve outcomes. And that's why the paste is given into the mouth and into the into the stomach, which is the important part of it. And then it goes with an intravenous component too. So there's uh, mouth, stomach, and IV. And IV. And so there, we've alluded to this a couple of times, but there's quite a large body of literature for GI decontamination. Can you give me a summary of, just a quick summary of what was it like before Sudoku and what kind of holes were there in that literature that made you want to study this further and add to that? Yeah, so the main, I think the main problem is that nobody's doing it. So there'd been a, a big Cochrane systematic review for this that showed quite convincingly that there'd been 15, 20 trials and the estimate of the risk reduction was about 0.9. So I can't, I've probably got that number slightly off, but there's, there's a significant reduction in the risk of mortality. And even though that was the case, there was still concern, particularly from the microbiology infectious diseases community, that this widespread application of antibiotics is going to lead to further resistance. The Most of the evidence came from Europe, and so there were some concerns about generalizability of the evidence and that maybe it didn't apply either in other settings with different ICU practices, but also in settings with different rates of endemic multi-resistant organisms. Yeah, obviously I'm older than you, Eddie, and so this has been something that's kind of studies on this have popped up on and off for the last 20 years. And I think one of the pushbacks has been that many of these studies do an individual patient-level ran randomization, and they look at the effect in that individual patient. But 
we have lots of infectious disease colleagues that say, well, but there might be an environmental effect of doing this, and you might increase resistance throughout the whole unit, for example. And the patients that you maybe didn't do this to and weren't in these individual patient trials may have some downstream negative effects of this. And, you know, that has sort of, I think, at least in the United States, in my talking to colleagues, that's sort of been the big pushback as to why not to do this is because, well, but are we just going to increase resistance throughout our ICUs or throughout our hospital or throughout our community? And maybe there's a little bit of good for a single patient, but maybe a whole lot of bad for others. And I think um, from a ANZIC's perspective, so Brian Cuthbertson, who we collaborate with, um, he's over in Canada, he was very active in this area and had been looking at kind of barriers to implementation. And it did seem that there was, if we could collaborate across countries, do a larger trial, cluster trial, perhaps we could answer questions that people, some of the um, implementation concerns, um, as well as get a larger sample size and power to really be able to answer this question, even though there is evidence already. But again, you know, we do like to do these things multiple times. <laughs> well, I think Todd, Todd had mentioned this to me before, I think it was earlier this week or around the time when this trial came out, is like GI decontamination is the best supported thing that we don't do as far as benefit for our patients in the ICU. So uh, I usually round out the intro by asking questions about the next steps and unanswered questions, but I think it's uh, we'll get to that. And I think it's probably worth moving onto the trial to set the context first. Well, I think we have to do one other thing in the intro, right? Maybe this is where you were going. Trial acronym? Obviously. So- I'm not a super kind grader. On the Ed and Todd cast, we grade trial acronyms. Right. Fair enough. Uh, so, we won't be offended. So we have two. Pseudo-Q is one and ANZIC is the other. Pseudo-Q stands for Selective Decontamination of the Digestive Tract in the ICU. Okay. I got the ICU. I got S-selective. I got decontamination and digestive as DD. But I'm completely lost on where that U is. And I have to admit that sours me a little bit on the acronym, maybe actually a lot on the acronym. So can you convince me to give this a grade higher than a four out of 10? Oh, four out of 10. That's tough. Eddie, is it possible that the Australians just spell selective S-U-L-E-C-T-I-V-E? <laughs> selective. I don't know. You can tell me. Well, we both weren't at the table when the acronym was oh, um, developed, but, and well, it's a long program of work. You know what we call that in the US? A yeah. cop out. <laughs> yeah. Totally copping out here. I'm going to blame others. But um, you might want to ask Brian and John Myberg, Ian Seppold. But this, if you notice, the U is little. So we're not saying that that's, that's usually means it's not somewhere in the acronym. But putting into context, the game, the written Sudoku puzzle game was massive when this was which is also Happy. spelled completely yeah, differently. Totally, right. but it was a play on on that, really. I think. But I didn't. But I, yeah. like I said, I thought it was well, I thought it was pronounced Sudiku, so I didn't get there at all. <laughs> so we might need to um, have a you know little note afterwards. We'll ask the people who did the acronym, and then yes, follow yeah. up because yeah. I mean, I mean, there's there's other. I know you guys didn't do it, but there's other vowels there. You just wanted a vowel yeah. in there. <laughs> selected has an e, has an i, right? Yeah. Uh, they wanted the get the game and. Uh, well, I'd appreciate that follow-up when you have it. You're also part of the ANZIX group, the Australia New Zealand Intensive Care Society. That one doesn't need any further explanation. I like how it's easy to say. I like how it's easy to work out if you didn't know what it was. ANZIX is a made-up word, but I'm actually quite enamored by the rest of it. So I'll go like a like a nine, a nine out of 10 for ANZIX. Oh. I obviously am a little bit of 
a more compassionate person than you. You don't so, want it. We came all this way. You didn't want to make us feel too bad. Yeah, I probably don't care that much about that. But <laughs> no, I mean, for me, I think uh, Sudoku is probably a six. And then Anzix is a great name. It's, it's suspect going to be as close to 10 as we get. Save Bacurge for the PCCRG. Prick. <laughs> So back on back on topic, we talked about the the why in our first segment. So let's jump into the methods. Sudoku is a crossover cluster randomized trial with a concomitant observational ecological assessment. We just had Matt Semler talking about pilots, so we know that cluster is the group. In this case, it's the ICU, and the crossover is allowing for each group to be its own control. There was one crossover, and each cluster period was one year with a three month washout period in between. Patients were those receiving mechanical ventilation in the ICU and predicted to be ventilated for 48 hours or more, or if they had screened out beforehand and ended up being on ventilation for 48 hours, they were rescreened. Todd, Naomi, Anthony, anything here on the patient selection that you wanted to comment on? I mean, these are the type of generalizable trials I think that we need in critical care. They, in general, are wildly inclusive. They exclude almost nobody. And so they are much more informative as to what is the effect of this practice when I put it into my clinical practice, as opposed to this may work in a very select handful of a very niche population, but I'm not sure what's going to happen when I extrapolate that to my practice. So, you know, I mean, this is the sort of place that I think we should be taking clinical trials. And the other the other aspect to that is probably that you're not just looking at the selection of the patients, but of the units that are involved in the thing. And there were a wide range of different, you know, some neurosurgical units, some general ICU units, some big referral centers, but also some smaller ICUs. And I think the other thing that I'll comment on is, is that the design here really addresses one of the big criticisms of the data prior to that, which is you only looked at the individual patients that were getting the actual treatment. What about the intensive care unit as a whole? And with the cluster design and the cluster being the unit of study, you get an output of what is the effect of this on all of the patients in that cluster, i.e. the intensive care unit. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting. A lot of times you think about clusters as like, maybe not the right way to think of it, but as a logistic limitation. And so we were forced to do a cluster as the best way to do it. In this case, it's the right way, or at least the right way to address some of the concerns from the prior literature. Yeah, I think a great example of where the science drives the study design. And in this situation, I think the science drives this study design. This is the right study design to answer this question. It also actually helped doing it like this, I think, from a uh, consent perspective in that the units, um, essentially, the sign-off was from the exec and this was the policy, going to be the policy in the units for the two-year period. So then it, it fell, it was all in hospital, so it fell under a waiver of consent. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Moving on from the patients and intervention, so we talked there's a three-pronged approach. So for this, there was a every six-hour topical paste that contained 10 milligrams of colistin, 10 milligrams of tobramycin, and then 125,000 units of nystatin that was applied to the gums of the mouth, and then of the same drugs at 10 cc gastric suspension, different concentrations. 
Uh, and then third prong was a four-day course of a third-generation cephalosporin or ciprofloxacin if they weren't already getting gram-negative antibiotics. And that's a lot. And I think the because my lack of familiarity with this practice, I have a couple of logistical questions here. Are those drugs not somehow inactivated by the stomach, the gastric acid? And is it safe to assume that, that those oral, the gastric-delivered antibiotics are not or only being minimally absorbed systemically? Uh, both of those things are correct. So of the previous studies, that, that's the combination of antibiotics that were given in the majority of them. Um, and they were given specifically for that reason, that there's minimal systemic absorption, particularly the colistin, which can have some quite nasty side effects. One of the problems that the study had to deal with was that Previous research had all been done in a um, non-standardized fashion so that the SDD components were sort of mixed up in the actual ICUs and they weren't prepared in a standardized fashion. Whereas for Sudoku, which I would have pronounced it Sudoku, <laughs> the, um, the, the preparations were made up specifically by a, a pharmaceutical company yeah. under licensed GMP, conditions yeah. under that's required for under Australian regulation. So it was done in a standardized fashion that could be done reproducibly. I wonder, and maybe you, neither of you have a pharmacist background, so you may not know this, but I wonder if there's some advantage of giving these drugs enterally in the fact that they work to eliminate some of the bacteria in the gut, but they're non-absorbable, in which case they don't actually give us a higher level of resistance because they're not systematic, they're not systemically absorbed into the systemic circulation, et cetera. Based off of the look on Anthony's face, I just made that up and it's... Well, I guess it's the name as well. It's selective decontamination. Yeah. The idea is around the um, reducing ventilator-associated pneumonia secretions coming yeah. up. So selective yeah. with a U. <laughs> so maybe the V is U. Yeah, that's a, that's a big stretch. <laughs> Um, I will, I think, need some help explaining the ecological assessment, uh, Naomi or Anthony. What I have is that this was to look for changes in the ICU microbiological flora in response to the decontamination drugs. So there is data collected in five periods, pre-trial, post-trial, and then in the final three months of each cluster period. And the data was collected on all the ICU patients, even those who are not enrolled. Did I get that? Is there a better that, way of explaining that? No, no, that? that's perfect. That's perfect. So the trial collected the sample, all microbiological samples that were sent for routine clinical reasons from the participants enrolled in the trial, but also collected samples from anybody in the ICU at the same time, whether they're done for routine clinical surveillance or because of suspected infection. And because it's, it's, it's the exact thing that Todd was talking about before, yeah, he was, that's monkeys type in Shakespeare. You get it right once. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my new, my new favorite guest. <laughs> yeah. You can cut that out though, can't no, you? No, I'm not going to. The, um, now you made me forget what I was up to. Oh, so the, the concern has always been that you, you give your selective decontamination products to, you know, patient A and patient B's got a mechanical heart valve and they get their resistant germ on the mechanical heart valve and the harms are not captured. And this was trying to get an idea of whether you'd capture the, the potential for um, resistant organisms to be pushed out through the use of these widespread use of antibiotics. I, I just like the difference in the academic level. Here in Tennessee, we say 
a blind squirrel finds an acorn every once in a while. <laughs> in Australia, they say, you know, a monkey's typing Shakespeare. I mean, I've heard both, Todd, to be quite honest. The, I think just on the ecological um, assessments, it was that was a key design aspect because there's so much barriers uh, to this intervention, particularly with ID physicians, that if we didn't do that, I think it would have been problematic. So we already knew from previous trials, if you don't collect data on this potential increase in antimicrobial resistance, then... Yeah, it's a, it's a big deal, right? Mm. It's, I mean, once you've... That horse is not going back into the barn. The horse is bolted, is what we would say. <laughs> the primary outcome here was in-hospital mortality with secondary outcomes of ICU mortality, ventilator-free days. There were the microbiologic outcomes of new C. diff infections, cultures with antibiotic-resistant organisms, clinical cultures, total antibiotic use, and the former of those two being used in the ecologic uh, assessment. Um, I don't have too many comments on those outcomes. I, I mean, I think, they, I think they seem like the right outcomes. They're patient-oriented clinically relevant. And it includes, you know, you may say, well, the microbiome, microbiological, ecological stuff isn't, patients don't care about that per se. I think that's probably true, but I think that addresses the clinician's concerns and what the clinicians care about. So we do get asked about not um, having VAP as an outcome. Oh, that sounds like a nightmare to have VAP as an <laughs> exactly. outcome. Can you explain yeah. to me, can you explain why? Why it's a nightmare. Yeah, or do you or, want me to explain why? Yeah, you can you go, please go. <laughs> I was just, oh, just that VAP is, my thought was like VAP, person adjudicating VAP, two different people will, one will think it's a VAP, one will think it's not. What do you do at that point? It's not completely objective. There's a lot of subjectivity there. So that's why uh, we always have to be cautious when we look at some of those outcomes. And people that do VAP, infectious disease doctors, that sort of stuff, like to say that. But my concern always is, do I care? Do I care if it has the VAP name? What I care about is any condition, whether it's VAP or not, that extends your ICU length of stay or extends your time on mechanical ventilation. And we have we have a number of studies of interventions for VAP that have reduced the incidence of VAP and then didn't make a difference on duration of mechanical ventilation. And I have no idea what that means. Like, I don't, you know, if you have a VAP that's not making you be on the ventilator longer, be in my ICU longer, or have a higher risk of dying, I, I'm not sure I care if somebody calls that a VAP or not. And for me, that's why I don't put all my eggs in the VAP basket is because I think it's a term that we find with people, but I'm not sure clinically it often makes that big of a difference. Yeah, it's a hospital quality term. So we can uh, jump into the results if that's okay with y'all. Table one, Yeah, right now everybody's laughing at using y'all. Uh, <laughs> table one, baseline characteristics, the median age was about 58. It was 63% male, which I think is a little shade higher than I'm used to, but it doesn't stand out as a problem. It was about 13% trauma admissions in each group. The Apache 2 score of was 20 between the groups, about 8% was immune suppressed. I found it interesting that 70% of the patients were already receiving IV antibiotics. There, there seemed to be two slight imbalances. One was the time from ICU admission to enrollment, which was 16 hours in the decontamination group and three hours in the control. The intervention doesn't seem to be the most time sensitive, but I found that you know a little bit odd. And then there was a difference in the oral chlorhexidine, so different type of selective decontamination. It was 27.9% versus 16.5%. Um, and that's even more interesting because each ICU was its own control. Any comments on those? Yeah, the last trial I yeah. saw of that, taking chlorhexidine away made no difference to anything. So whether they're imbalanced probably doesn't make a big difference to it because it doesn't seem to have an effect on very much. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And the time to enrollment, I think it was just around how we were able to 
So I guess when you're in the control, um, yeah. you kind of know who's going to. So you had that window period that you can enrol, but you're not doing anything as such. Whereas I feel like with the intervention, it was a bit more. You relied on the nurse to implement something. Yeah, makes so sense. that is, and it wasn't. It's not a. I wouldn't say it's an easy intervention for a nurse who's never done this before. It's yeah. not something that's standard for us. So yeah. I think that probably plays a bit into it. Yeah, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. So it was just the time of the actual implementing, it took a little bit more time. And that makes, mm-hmm. that makes perfect logical sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, figure one is the flow of patients through the trial that I won't go over in detail other than to say that I can appreciate how making a consort diagram for both the trial and a separate ecological assessment into one picture uh, must have been very complicated. So John you, Weinberg loves doing that. Really? (laughs) (laughs) I was about to say, I was like, I have to make a a normal consort diagram, and I didn't love doing that. So Sudoku was a neutral trial where 27% of patients in the intervention group died compared to 29.1% in the control group, which is an odds ratio of 0.91 in favor of the intervention, but a confidence interval that scooches past 1, 0.82 to 1.02. There wasn't a meaningful difference in any of the secondary clinical outcomes, Interestingly, there is actually less antibiotic-resistant organisms, 20.9% versus 32.5%, an absolute difference of 11%, and a confidence interval that ranged from negative 147 to negative 7.3%. There's also less positive blood cultures, and then uh, non-significantly different, but, a, but less C. diff and daily dose of antibiotics over 28 days, all in the intervention side. Table 3 and Figure 3 are the ecological assessment. And the non-inferiority analyses, there was non-inferiority with decontamination related to new organisms and C. diff, but not antibiotic resistance. I think I confused myself there. Can any of you walk me through that? First, before we do that, for all the listeners out there who've been listening all along and know about our C versus K argument, and who've been looking for the opportunity to email or reach out to us, just send an email to Eddie saying how you would spell the word scooches that he just used uh, in discussing the results. Really? I think that has a spelling, Todd. Maybe, he says. And the Australians are looking really confused <laughs> over here. <laughs> like, he's, he's, I'm just, I'm a scooching forward in my chair. Everybody gets it now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, can one of you guys clarify some of those results for me? What's important for me to take away there? Yeah, thanks, Naomi. I'll take, I'll field that question. Like the primary outcome is is mortality, you know, hospital mortality sensitive at 90 days. And there's a small reduction that's in the frequentist sense statistically non-significant, but entirely in keeping with what was known from the previous literature. The secondary sort of patient level outcomes, again, are consistent what's been found in the previous literature. And there's less is exactly what would happen if you if this intervention worked. You'd see less positive blood cultures and less bacteremias. The total daily dose of antibiotics was roughly the same in both the groups. So even though you're front-loading them, you get rid of some of the later infections. And so the overall total exposure to antibiotics is not greater. And then the the ecological sort of non-inferiority question, from what I understand, the, the problem is that the there weren't many resistant organisms. And because of the, the nature of intensive care in Australia, we, do, we don't have huge numbers of resistant organisms throughout the the ICUs. Oh, I've actually I've actually heard this before from uh from a friend who did a, some training overseas before he came over to the states that MRSA was like a a myth. 
Yeah, and, yeah. and that you know, come over to the United States, it's like, well, you have to be worried about MRSA for every patient. Is that true in Australia about MRSA? We see a little yeah. bit of MRSA. We see a little bit of hospital-acquired MRSA and a little bit of community MRSA, but it's not a huge problem. And the you know the carbapenemase resistant organisms and those sorts of things aren't huge volumes of what we see, to be honest. And I think that's why you get these wide confidence intervals because mm-hmm. the event rates are low. Yeah. So potentially underpowered. So really the important thing of why it was done in a non-inferior way was to essentially between this intervention and not doing it, is there any increase in antimicrobial resistance? So is it not just as good or it doesn't increase resistance? It doesn't, um, we hope it reduces resistance, I guess. So they went the non-inferior design there. Which I think is the the right kind of design there. Can you tie this into y'all's meta-analysis? Though Sudoku was neutral, the meta-analysis you led showed that there did seem to be a benefit in reducing mortality with decontamination at 99% chance that it improves mortality by Bayesian analysis. Can you walk me through some of the highlights there? I'm afraid we probably don't have the time to go through all of it. Yeah. From the meta-analysis, I think the biggest thing we found is that there's a lot of evidence there's almost 24,000 trial, there's more than 24,000 trial participants who've been randomized into studies of, of this intervention. Most of the trials were individual patient trials rather than these cluster trials, which you probably need. But the majority of the patients came from the Yeah, cluster. the majority of the patients are done in the, you know, the more recent trials that were cluster level trials. For mortality, the risk of bias was sort of low for that outcome in most of the trials. So we think it's a reasonably reliable result. And it's pretty convincing that there's a reduction in mortality. The other sort of hard outcomes like bacteremias that are reported, there seems to be a reduction in bacteremia consistent with this. And the big problem we found was that the reporting of antimicrobial resistance was so inconsistent among studies that we had no real way of finding some quantitative analysis for that. But there was, again, there was no consistent signal that there was anything bad happening. It's just that um, we would say the results were all over the shop in the way they'd been reported. Yeah. So you couldn't get a, a decent way of putting that all together. And I guess from the um, primary analysis where we did do both Bayesian and Frequentus, the results were very much similar regardless of what statistical method was used. So we're feeling like it's pretty robust yeah. Um, data. Yeah, when and, you get to 99% yeah. posterior probability, I mean, that Frequentus analysis yeah, the is The credible intervals or if you're doing Frequentus confidence intervals are all, they're not crossing the unity boundary. It's all positive for STD being beneficial of reducing mortality. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at figure two in the systematic review and meta-analysis, you see that the signal is pretty consistent across the large number of trials. You know, oftentimes we'll see the the point estimate bounce back and forth and one side of one and the other side of one and that sort of signal. And here, yeah, there's a trial or two, but there's, you know, 25 trials here and 23 of them, the point estimate is, you know, 0.9. And when you start getting that sort of a consistent signal, you get pretty high confidence that that's probably really what the actual signal is. Yeah, the only thing I'd say was that we didn't do a lot of subgroups, but one of the subgroups we did do was to look at the difference between individual patient randomized trials and cluster trials. And there did seem to be less of a signal in the cluster trials than there were in the individual patient trials, which does give you some bit, a little bit of pause for concern that the 
the trials done later down the track, probably a little bit higher quality, probably more specific to this intervention, didn't show the same treatment effect as you'd seen in the, in the rest of the trials. And then the other subgroup that came up having some interaction was where the IV, where trials that used IV component had beneficial effect compared to those that didn't. So is it the IV component that's making oh, the majority of the impact? So, so it's not just, it's the paste and the... the is the SOD component, the selective oral decontamination I thought sod was going to be like... <laughs> like that's Todd, Todd when he's sleeping, I guess. Yes, yeah. sleeping Todd. <laughs> sod. Sod. I was, I, was, I was writing for like that to be a different term, not an acronym. <laughs> but that's that's the thing in the grade table. In the grade table that we put in, there was some heterogeneity in the way that the actual intervention was delivered across the trials. And so that's why we downgraded a little bit for that because some trials used either different antibiotics as components of their paste and their gastric solution, or some of them didn't have an IV component to what they were. Yeah. And they just gave the paste and the gastric solution. So it might just be the IV component and we don't need to do the gastric solution or the paste, uh, potentially. That sounds like a great idea to do for the next <laughs> round of studies. Um, so you've come all the way to the United States and we're telling you, thanks for coming, but we're barbarians. <laughs> and we're clearly way behind the rest of the world and have no idea what you're talking about. What is your recommendation for us? Well, it's also a recommendation for us because we're still not doing it. So I think we've had it before, the evidence. We now have even more robust evidence. I feel like we need to be making some kind of move to um, working out how do we implement this into practice. Yeah, what are what are the barriers here? So, I mean, I'm, I'm maybe a little bit naive, but this seems pretty definitive that it's helping patients. And then as the best evidence we have as far as antimicrobial resistance and other things doesn't seem like it's harmful there. So, so, what, so what is the barrier? We are looking into that. The biggest barrier we've run across so far is that our infectious diseases colleagues remain very concerned that we're going to open the gates of Hades if we start doing this and that horse will be out. Yeah. Um, oh, that's a mixed metaphor if I've ever heard one. But, uh, you know, once you get colistin resistance, particularly colistin, I think they're mm. worried about colistin resistance as an antibiotic of last resort for a lot of patients has its own particular concern for them. So we haven't addressed, I don't think we've addressed that concern fully. And if we had an ideal, in an ideal world, we'd be doing a stepped wedge sort of design where you would slowly implement the intervention in different units and have some very close surveillance to look to see whether you are actually driving further antimicrobial resistance or not. I mean, as long as I've been in medicine, we've kind of been beat over the head about this antibiotic stewardship, and we only have so many antibiotics, and we can't have resistance, and we need to, to be stewards. And the concept of this goes against that. It's kind of contrary to that. And I think people have had a hard time realizing that like lots of things, unfortunately, in critical care that seem to make sense. When we then study them, we find the opposite or that they don't work in this situation. While antibiotic stewardship makes sense and we're trying to do it, in this situation, broad use of these antibiotics in this way doesn't necessarily seem to be causing increased resistance. And oh, by the way, it's not just neutral, but it may actually be really good for the patients if we do it. And I think having to try and overcome that resistance has is, is really been the problem in trying to implement this broadly in clinical practice. And it's a pretty, it's a pretty limited 
patient population, right? Yes. So it's only patients who are receiving mechanical ventilation. It's not all ICU patients. 70% of those patients are receiving antibiotics anyway. anyway. And then uh, Sudoku showed us that the total antibiotic dose was the same. So it just depends on when you're getting it, right? So you're getting it up front or getting it later, the total dose is the same. So yeah, I, I don't know. There's a there's a lot of there's a lot of things here moving that direction. So the other barrier would be um, just the access to the drug, the paste. So we it was developed for the clinical trial, but so it's not commercially available in its GMP format that we've produced for uh, Sudoku, and so it would have to be commercialized essentially for sites to get access to it. So that is a hurdle because there are sites in Australia who participated in Sudoku. Seen the results and have said, How do we get the paste? Eddie, I will say, I love your enthusiasm and I love your ability to synthesize all of this down. And I have already set up a meeting with you with our hospital administration and infection control folks so that you can convince them the error of our ways and that we can use this in our ICU. I see that he's handballing that one to you <laughs> yeah. rather than doing it himself. I'm not, I mean, I'm not the medical director of the ICU. Yeah. I, I have, uh, question for Anthony and Naomi. You could take either question. I think they both will serve the same effect. One would be, if you had to do it again, is there anything that you would do differently? And the second question or alternative question is, are there any next steps for you all in this topic, in this space? Yeah, us all is thinking about how we're going to move this forward. And we've been thinking about two things. And one is how would we set up a, you know, to be honest with you, like how are we going to utilize the existing antimicrobial surveillance systems that occur in the various jurisdictions in Australia, get them all together, you know, herd those cats into one place so we can get an idea of what the baseline incidence of various antimicrobial resistances is. So then you've got a shot when you put the implementation off top of that of seeing how it changes. Yeah. And the other thing, as you noted, that we've seen in this that it's that you'd probably need an IV component to your SDD to do the infection prevention. But there's a possibility that that might be sufficient. And if the IV component was sufficient... So then you're just ceftriaxone, it's not colistin, it's not tobramycin, it's correct. not any of these things. It's, it may be more acceptable. It yeah. may be more acceptable. And if you get the same benefit from something without getting the same risk. So, and particularly if you could select out a group of patients who might be at most likely to benefit from it. So the, the ones who are most likely to get aspiration of upper digestive tract secretions mm. that have got gram negatives in them. So people with maybe with neurological injury, for example, then you might get a selected population. You know, the heterogeneity of treatment effect you're getting away at the beginning of your trial and selecting that population most at risk. So narrowing the population a little bit more to try to enrich Correct. and also not just enrich the population, but Correct. make it more palatable as far as from a stewardship perspective. Exactly. That's really Correct. interesting. It's sort of sneaking up on the people who don't like this and don't want to use it. You kind of sneak up on them, which brings us to a great joke. Do you know how you catch a unicorn? You sneak up on it. That's that's not a good joke. All you got was confused looks. You got a pity laugh from Naomi over there. So I was thinking really bad dad joke. <laughs> Todd, you're the medical director of ICU. Are we going to make a push for this or are we going to wait for Anthony and Naomi to continue to do their excellent work and answer some more questions for us? I mean, I think it's I think it's worth opening discussions. I'm not that optimistic that we're going to make headway in our discussions. I think the resistance from infection prevention and and antibiotic stewardship folks is going to be a pretty strong headwind to try and move through. 
But, I mean, you started off this whole thing by saying, Todd told me this is the one intervention that has the best data for improving patient outcomes we care about that we don't do. And I think that's true. And with, you know, Sadiqia, I have to be honest, I was kind of hoping it'd be a just clearly neutral, maybe even negative trial. And I could just put it up there and say, this is the one I believe. And that's why we're not doing it. And while technically it's neutral, it's really, really supportive of the data that were previously out there. And then, you know, as they often do, uh, Naomi and Anthony went and did a systematic review and meta-analysis to just drive the nail in the coffin that uh, while our trial may not be wildly positive, uh, when we put it with everything else, it's consistent and it suggests that this is something that we should think about in order to improve the care of our patients. So what I'm going to do to try and get this through, and I've already alluded to this earlier in the podcast, is I'm going to put you in charge of talking to the administration. Yeah, that's that's not going to go well. But that's all we have for episode 20 of the ICU Eden podcast. If you have any questions for Todd, for Naomi, for Anthony, or anything else you want to talk about in the future, you can hit us up at ICU Eden Toddcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on the social at ICU Cast, at Ed Chan, that's E D Q I A N, and at Todd Rice underscore ICU. At Naomi Hammond. Thank you, Todd, again for your insights. Thank you again to Naomi and Anthony for all your hard work and congratulations on completion of an excellent trial for us to interpret. Thank you, Mike Gannon, for the intro and outro music. Thank you to everyone listening, and we will see you next time. Let's go save some lives. Let's go save some lives. You guys should go and save some lives. (laughs) No, we will go and save lives. So I spent a long time doing a rise, like a long time. And the acronym for that is... You know, it's Australasian resuscitation in sepsis evaluation. Because if you don't have the in, the acronym is ARS. (laughs) 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 It it was almost a terrible acronym. But I don't know if you want to put that in your podcast. (laughs) Yeah, we will. We will. I'll, I'll make it somewhere. I'll make it somewhere. We heard the other day at dinner that there's the care units right? And there's the medical intensive care unit, the MICU, the surgical intensive care unit, the SICU, and then there's the follow-up care unit, <laughs> which we decided maybe needed a slightly <laughs> different name. This podcast is made for educational purposes. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked materials is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. It's inevitable, but we try to stay away from opinions, but all opinions represent our own and not of any entity that we work at. Please keep this in mind as you enjoy the podcast.